Well, good morning, Grace Church of DuPage. It's good to see you all. What a wonderful, wonderful morning to come and worship the Lord. Well, you get one more week of me, and then the Lord will be merciful and bring Pastor Worley back next week. Continue to pray for him and Gene. And, um, we, we communicated this morning a bit, and he did share that he feels like some refreshment has set in, and that's really been one of our prayers for him and Gene in this season because uh, they both shoulder um, tremendous burden, joyfully, but still weighty. So, I'm overjoyed to be here before you. I, I, uh, I'm going to start by doing some things that they say you ought not to do when they teach you in pastor school, and one of them is to tell about things that, that uh, you can't stand. Never bury your soul in the pulpit, right? Isn't that what they tell you? Never bury your soul in the pulpit. Well, yeah. So I'll tell you one thing I can't stand, and this isn't, this isn't scandalous or, or raunchy or, or wrong in any way, but it's I don't like being asked to do things I can't do. I don't think I'm alone in that, obviously, by the, 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 the simmering groans happening there. I think part of it is because, because um, it hits at my pride. I, I love to, to do things I'm good at. And I, I remember an old, old pastor that I sat under who said, one of the things that we do typically is we, we practice things we're good at. We don't practice things that we're bad at. That's a good point. I listened to it. I shook my head. I agreed, and I never put that to practice. The other thing that I, 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 I can't stand is when I'm asked to do something, but I, I, I don't feel like I have the tools to do it. I feel like I'm hamstrung. I feel like I'm, I'm, hand, I'm handcuffed. And, um, so, for instance, think about if you were asked to help a neighbor Say there's a, an elderly neighbor, and you were asked in mid-November to help break her heavily wooded yard. And you go there, but then you find that there's no rakes. Totally unprepared. I'm not equipped to do this. How am I ever going to do this? I hate situations like that. God asks things of his people. Sometimes it's rake, rake the elderly woman's yard. God asks things of his people, but here's what we can be assured of. When God asks us things, he demands things, he desires things from us, he always gives us what we need. Because he is a good, and he's a kind, and he's a gracious Father in heaven. That's been the frame of my thoughts as I've, I've been just studying at a relatively deep level in Ephesians chapter 4 over the past couple of weeks. I'd invite you to turn there now if you haven't already. We're going to read the entirety of, we're going to read the entirety of the section again. Chapter 4, it is uh, beginning in verse 1. And, and last week we covered verses 1 through 6. 
Today, we are going to talk through verses 7 through 16. And I'm multitasking pretty well at this point. I'm making sense, hopefully, or as much sense as you're used to hearing me make, while I'm trying to figure out the whole electronic thing. You didn't even know what was going on. Um, But I think I may have solved it. Yeah. All right, so here we go. We're all in Ephesians chapter 4. For those who are having trouble finding it, there's a pew Bible number. Ephesians chapter 4 is right after Ephesians chapter 3. For those struggling to find it, that is in the New Testament. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. Just grateful to God for his word. And really believing by faith that whatever God asks of his people, he gives us everything we need to fulfill that ask. Hear the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Boy, just chew on that for a while. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried out by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Boy, Father, you can just feel the power coming from those words. What Paul is expressing of your desire for oneness, this fullness of Christ, this desire 
that he gives gifts towards, Lord, these things are just supernatural. These are of you. And Father, I stand now before this body, a, a mere human who has been redeemed by Christ and has your spirit indwelling me, preaching preaching and teaching your word to people, some who, who, who know you, who have the very same spirit, and this will be a message that will draw us, by your grace, closer to one another in oneness, closer to one another in Christ-likeness. And then there's some, Lord, who come here this morning who don't know you. Rather than that oneness that begins with a, a reconciling oneness with you, Father, they remain far apart. And I pray, Father, for the glory of Christ the King, that your Spirit would be at work in their hearts, drawing them, helping them to see their need for Christ, the only hope. And Father, that you'd give them a, a vision of their need and Christ's absolute sufficiency to meet their need for a Savior to rescue them from sin and bring them near to you now and for all of eternity. So, Father, we're asking that your miraculous works would just continue even right now into this room. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's the title of our message today as we're looking at, once again, the second part of verses 1 through 16, beginning in verse 7. Title of our message, title of our message is The Gracious, The Gracious Gift-Giving King. The gracious, gift-giving king. And it's based again on a, on, a, on, a, on a premise. A premise. And it is this. Whatever God asks of us, whatever God asks of us, whatever God asks of us, he will provide everything necessary through his spirit, through his word, through his gifts, through his people, he will provide everything we need to accomplish what he asks. We as God's people lack nothing. Nothing. That's, that's, that's our frame. That's our frame. So, we are going to work through this passage in three very simple parts. Three very simple parts. Paul Rupsis is going to be really happy with this because I've, 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 I've stripped this down. You throw too many words at Paul, especially kind of nebulous words, undefined words. He, he could see, he starts shrieking in the pew. So I just, I, 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 three simple words. Three simple words. Yeah, for some reason, I'm not able to advance the slides for whatever the reason. Let me see if that works. There it is. Giver, gift, and gold. Giver, gift, and gold. I have to have three points to maintain my union card, and I'm trying to keep it really simple for my note takers. So first, we're going to focus on the giver. The giver. Verse 7, verse 7 is where we're going to begin. And I want you to look at the three G's found in verse 7. But Grace was given to each one of us. To each one of us. Paul's including himself in that. According to the measure of Christ's gift. 
So there are gifts given, there are gifts given as an expression of grace. And they're given to all of us. After talking about in verses 1 through 6, this unity that God so desires from his people, built around those seven ones found in verses 1 through 6, Paul now starts talking about some individuality. And this is where it takes a miraculous work of God to take all of these individuals with all of these gifts to bring them into one. It has to be a work of God. Everyone of the one has been given a gracious gift. And those gifts are to be used for God's glory. I don't think that's a shocking statement. We're given gifts to glorify God with those gifts. We could also say that we are given those gifts to glorify God and for the good of Christ's church. So as we're exercising those gifts, we want to glorify God and we want it to be for the good of the church. Well, what does that look like? Well, based on what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4, part of the good of the church is the unity of the church. Individual gifts, individual gifts used for one ultimate purpose, glorifying God by encouraging unity in the body. Unity in the body. This speaks in part to God's desire for his children to exist in, to be part of a local body of believers. We're living in an age now where church membership has literally, a lot of churches are going away from any official sort of yoking, any covenanting with a body. I talk to folks in and out of, of, the, of the area, and, and I'll say, well, hey, what, what church do you fellowship with? Well, I don't need a church. I got me, Jesus, and my Bible. And I say, well, Lone Ranger Christianity, now, for younger folks, Google search Lone Ranger, because that ain't going to help you too much. Lone Ranger, do you, do you know you date yourself when you preach? It's really, really disturbing. Long, Lone Ranger Christianity, a spiritual life just let on, your, let on your own, disattached from a group of believers, is not part of God's plan. Insert plug for starting point class here. Oh, all right, yeah, we're having a starting point class. First week in October. Because we believe it's incredibly important for believers to be yoked with a body. When you're studying the Scriptures, when you're studying the Scriptures, um, it's, it's helpful. I, some folks come and they say, well, I know I should be studying the Bible, but I don't, what do I do? I mean, this is, I, you, throw them, you throw them 66 books and it's this big Whoa, what do I do? One of the things we, we talk about or I talk about in instructing is just take a little chunk. A lot of the Bibles have little headings. Read from heading to heading and, and just pray and, 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 and read it and then ask yourself some questions. One of those is, what sort of truth about God do you learn? Then we go on to other things. What does it reveal about you? What does it reveal about what God would want you to do in light of the first two questions? And in and through this, we find 
something we've already revealed, and that is a truth about God very simply, and that is that, that is that God desires, God always gives what is necessary to fulfill his desire for his people. That is a truth about God that we learn from this simple passage. Oneness, I want oneness, I want oneness. Almost sounds like a cheer, but that's what verses 1 through 6 say. God desires us to be one. And then where do we start? Verse 7, he gave. That's the nature of God. Those are the things we come across in Scripture. And that giving begins with the giving of Christ for us. And the giving of God continues by the giving of the Holy Spirit to live within us. None of what we are talking about is possible without the gift of the Holy Spirit. And to those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, Christ, the gracious, gift-giving King, passes out gifts. And if you look at the end of verse 7, it says, He gives gifts according to His measure, according to the measure of Christ's gift. So what happens is, Jesus Christ, in His sovereignty, distributes gifts as he sees fit to give them out. Wow. It's all about Christ. He is the one who is victorious. He is the king. He is the one as the victorious king who gives out gifts in whatever measure he chooses. That's why when you see uh, church signs or you see slogans where it says it's all about Christ, that could easily be beaten down into where it doesn't mean much, but truly it is all about Christ. And Paul goes on to tell us that Christ's gracious giving of gifts is a response to something. His victory. His victory. And he uses, he uses Psalm 68:18 to bring that into the light. Look at verse 8. He quotes Psalm 68 verse 18. So so Christ gives these gifts because verse 8 when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now a good Bible student's going to say, well, if I turn to Psalm 68:18, as it shows in our English text, you'd see it doesn't exactly say that. It says, you ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts of men. Why the difference? Why is there a difference? couple schools of thought behind the difference. This is, this is, this is going to be, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go deep into this because I don't want to lose you, but there is, there is a, a school of rabbinical teaching and thought that says that this is what's called a midrash pesher. All that that means is the rabbis would read the Old Testament scripture and apply its fulfillment to whatever was going on right now. Whatever was going on right now, they would see fulfillment. Could be that. Could be Paul exercising that. 
could also be Paul is summarizing the psalm, which talks about the victory of God, the God who fights for his people, responding to the pleas and the calls of his people. Whatever the reason, ultimately, for Paul taking that psalm and modifying it, Paul connects it to Christ and his work. I mentioned last week that I always appreciate the work of John Stott. I used to practice my Alistair Begg accent by saying Stotty. Uh, he was just so good with it. I can't do it like that. I could listen to Alistair Begg read the phone book in that accent. That wasn't in my notes. But, but John Stott says this about Paul. He, I'm going to try this. Oh, it's before you. Good. Thank you. Sound Booth is doing a great job. Micah, thank you, brother, because I'm handcuffed up here, man. That's good. So, so John Stott said he saw in the exaltation of Jesus a further fulfillment of this description of the triumph of God. Do you see Jesus Christ as victorious? Do you? Do we then, because we're in him, live lives expecting victory? Christ ascended as conqueror to the Father's right hand. And then Paul, back to the text, gives a Holy Ghost-inspired commentary in his parenthesis, in the ESV at least, it's parenthesized, verses 9 and 10. So, hey, if Christ ascended, what does that mean? That means he must have descended. I believe the descending here into the lower regions, the earth, so ESV does almost like a little bit of translation there by how it translated, the earth, is talking about his incarnation, it's talking about his death, and is talking about his going into the tomb. But ultimately, the focus isn't on that. The focus is on the fact that who is it, who is it that gives these gifts so that we can fulfill God's calling. It's Jesus Christ. And what is it about Jesus Christ? It's the fact that he rose and he ascended. Not just to show himself here for 40 days, but ascending to the Father in victory. This is our Christ. Our Christ has filled all things. He has accomplished everything that the Father purposed for him to accomplish. And he's, because of that, he is given authority over all of creation. And now that king who's been given all of creation is his domain by his graciousness gives gifts to his people. And we are part of that. One thing I would just say as a general biblical theme from this is that Jesus Christ's victory is a remedy to all of our fears. Jesus Christ's victory is a remedy to all of our fears. What, what are we fearing today? Do we fear the dark, demonic realm? We've been talking about praying warfare prayers in light of the season the Lord has this church in. 
thankfully, thankfully, the Lord keeps us in the dark about just how significant those wars are or we'd, we'd never leave our closets. So are we? Are we fearful about those things? Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus won the victory over those things. He put to death the domain of darkness. Are we frightened by the world and all of its anxieties, all of its pressures? Jesus Christ has overcome the world in victory. Are we afraid of death? Are we, are we like the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, do we still live our lives in slavery to the fear of death? I'm here to tell you, you don't need to fear death because Jesus Christ won the victory over death. So we needn't fear it anymore. This afternoon, God allowing, I will be going to Beacon Hill where Gertie Klett lived. And we're going to do a little memorial service for the folks that live there. And our first reading, our first reading is going to come from Philippians 1, which just says, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And I'm going to ask the question, why is it that I can stand before you folks and tell you Gertie Klett saw death as gain? Why? Because she knew Christ had defeated it. Only goodness was coming on the other side of death. Jesus Christ is the victor. He's the king of the universe. He is the one worthy to anchor all of our hope. He is the one who is worthy of all of our trust. So Paul is saying, Paul is saying this, that Christ, so the victorious ascended King Jesus now pours out gifts upon his subjects. The victorious ascended King Jesus now pours out gifts upon his subjects. He is a truly gracious, gift-giving king. God, God desires something from his people, unity. And God gives us everything through Christ to achieve that unity. But now let's go to point number two on our outline, the gift. We know Jesus Christ is the gracious giver of that gift because he is the ascended, victorious king who passes out gifts to his subjects as he sees fit. But now Paul starts talking about particular gifts. Particular gifts given to Christ's church. Given so that all of us, with all of our personalities, all of our preferences, but also all of the gifts God has given us, we can be brought into one, a unity in the Spirit. So verse 11 says, and he gave, so there's our giving God, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Apostles and prophets were foundational to the church. Paul says a couple of chapters back in this letter, in Ephesians chapter 2, where he's talking about those who were far off at one point are being brought near. He says in Ephesians 2, second part of verse 19 through verse 20, 
He says, but you are fellow citizens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Thank you. And that house is built upon a foundation. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So I think what Paul is doing is he's carrying that foundational thought forward. I don't, I don't see these being continuing offices. But they still affect us in some way. Because we stand on the foundation of which Christ is the cornerstone. Doctrine, teaching, truths that we are all called to be united around. That's the foundation. So even though the offices, as expressed, do not continue, we still stand on the foundation that was laid by them. Then we come to another word, which is fascinating, evangelist. Because you don't find it used very often in the Scripture. We know that evangelists proclaim the good news, gospel truths. And they take the truths revealed in the foundation, the foundation, and they proclaim it. I believe also, though, that evangelists, or we can call them good newsers, good newsers, have a ministry both to the inside part of the body and then those outside. So one of the only other uses of the term is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. So certainly part of, part of Timothy's job is to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. But we also know in the pastoral epistles, there is a massive, massive weight put upon his shepherding the flock of God well. So somehow, somehow Timothy, part of his care to the body is to bring the gospel constantly to bear before the body. I like to call these folks gospel practitioners. Gospel practitioners. When you think of practitioner, you think of, you think of medicine. You think of, of the medical community. And in much the same way, if we think of someone who has studied medicine, they, they go to school and they labor long and they, they learn about the biology and the body chemistries and, and these big words. And then what they do is they stand before somebody who is ailing in some ways or is just seeking a greater level of health and they take their knowledge of what they've learned and they apply it particularly where it is needed. And that's what I have in mind when I think of gospel practitioners. It's definitely a proclamation of the fact that Israel's king came to die for his subjects who enter into that kingdom by faith. There is that. And I'm thankful for, for uh, Nick's reading in Jeremiah. I didn't even, I, I confess I didn't read that. 
but I use the word balm. A gospel practitioner, a good newser, knows and is so enraptured by the gospel, the good news, and all of its beauty and intricacy that they know where to put the gospel balm on the wounds of the people there before. They understand the good news as the call to walk righteously, uprightly, and holy. They know how to take and put the good news to practice as they're standing before people who are just grasping for hope as they've got the really bad news. They can apply the gospel. They put the gospel into practice. I think that's one way we can see good newsers having an inside the body. So Christ's gracious gifts to his church include evangelists. And, Paul says, Christ's gracious gifts is shepherds and teachers. So the fascinating thing is that is the only one of the list that we find any sort of particular, particular instruction on calling and qualification. These are faithful men who guide Christ's body. These are faithful men who teach Christ's body. These are faithful men who are gospel practitioners and teach the body to be gospel practitioners, all centered around the truth of God. The foundation laid by the apostles and prophets with Christ being the chief cornerstone. It is these men that are given by God as a gift to shepherd and teach the body towards that oneness God desires. All of these are the gracious gift of the king to his church. And we've all tasted of these gifts. If you're in Christ, we've all tasted of them. We stand on the shoulders of the apostles and prophets. We stand on the doctrine they've established. We come and we, we praise and we worship the cornerstone of that foundation, Jesus Christ. We stand on the shoulders of the evangelists who have faithfully proclaimed the good news of Christ as the kingdom has spread. We are edified by those who know right where to apply the gospel to our lives. And still this day, immediately and directly, we eat of the fruit of the gifts of the shepherds or pastors and teachers God has given. God has desires for his people. This is the drum I keep beating. God has desires for his people, but because of the nature and goodness of God, he always gives the gifts towards achieving it. His desire is oneness. God gives us everything we need to fulfill that oneness by way of gifts. Number three on the outline is simply the word goal. Goal. So we got a gift giver who gives gifts for a particular purpose. We know that the ultimate purpose flowing from, flowing from verses one through six is this unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. The unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Christ has given gifts, the gifts of verse 11 in particular, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up 
of the body of Christ. So those gifts in verse 11 are to equip to do God's work. Using the gifts God has given us individually, using those gifts to do the work of God in a way that encourages unity within the body. That's God's desire for his people. And he's given us everything we need to fulfill those desires. Everything. That's how he is. So the purpose of these gifts mentioned in verse 11 is to equip the body to minister so that the body of Christ may be built up. Then Paul starts to get to the goal here, and we're going to see it has a lot to do with last week's message. Verse 13, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you see three things so the equipping, the using of gifts for, the, for, the, for ministering within God's church, among God's people, is to be towards the unity of the faith. The gifts of verse 11 are to build us up in the knowledge of the Son of God. And this isn't mere head knowledge. It's not mere head knowledge, but it is knowledge. It is knowledge about God. It is a knowledge about God the Son. It is knowledge about God the Holy Spirit. All mentioned in verses, in, in verses 4 through 6 above. It is knowledge about sin. It is knowledge about salvation found in Christ alone. It is knowledge about the kingdom of God. But it is knowledge as we grow in understanding that transforms us. It changes our lives lives. So wherever we're at, whether it's an Awana on Wednesday night or whether it's in the youth group on Wednesday night, whether it's, it's during song time on Sunday morning, ABF on Sunday morning, youth group on Sunday morning, or right here, our prayer has to be, Lord, I, I want to come into contact with your truth and I want that truth to transform me. It's got to be an experiential, that's a big word, transforming knowledge of the Son of God towards mature manhood, which is talking, it, it, the, the definition really is attached to that next point, the fullness of Son of God, Son of Man. The fullness of the fullness of Christ is God's plan for us. So, we know some things. As students of the Scripture, we know that God predestined us to be in Christ. Those are in Christ. And He fills us with the Spirit. Lives in us. We're temples. But there's a purpose in that Spirit's indwelling. So in Romans 8, in Romans 8, 29, we see it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, when we get to, if, if the destination is the fullness of Christ, and remember I'm watching these steps, so somebody shout if I get too close. So, so, as we, so if the destination is the full imitation of Christ, Christ-likeness, there's an express lane, and then there's a really trafficy lane. And the express lane is when we take advantage of the gifts God has given us to express our gifts, so we all live in the bonds of peace, in the unity of the Spirit, loaded with love. Then the church and every part of it is in the fast lane towards Christ-likeness because that's God's goal. God the Father so loves the Son that he wants, to, he, he wants to show his love for the Son. He wants the Son glorified by saving a bunch of folks and making them to look like him. We get to participate in that. So here's the goal. Here's the reason for this gracious gifting. If you want to pray for Grace Church, pray this for us. And when we are all heading towards this, we will mature. We will start to become like grown-ups. And when we're like grown-ups, we're no longer like children. Verse 14. Children who are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So immaturity, we start to fall prey to all sorts of weird teaching that is not in line with the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and prophets with Christ the chief cornerstone. That's what happens in immaturity. And I'm not saying that to shame anybody because we all start there. It's the purpose of discipling is to bring them along and help folks mature in the faith. But immaturity in the faith has the potential to cause great harm to our walk, but also to the body collectively. It's fascinating. What does God desire for us? What does God demand from us? Well, he wants unity, but he also wants maturity. We're not going to turn there. I'll put a couple of verses up on the, on the screen, but I find the words from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5. This is verses 12 through 14 that will be before you. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, For though by this time you ought, expectation, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So there's, there's this expectation of maturity because everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And that last clause of verse 14, I would link directly to verse 
14 and Ephesians 4. So when you're a little child in the faith, you're not able to discern good from evil. And God in his graciousness understands that when he, he fills us with the Spirit and we're in relationship with him, he doesn't go, all right, Spirit, seminary education, go preach on the doctrine of justification. No, we all start there. But there is an expectation for us to grow. You think about it, if you're, at, you're uh, out at lunch, see a nice family over there, and it's, oh man, this is pretty cool. So husband and wife seem like they love one another. Children, two teenagers seem like they're getting on pretty well. Dad orders extra bacon on his burger. I'm in. I love these people. I'm going to see if their family trees and mine match up, right? And then mom gets out the bottle, shakes up the infamil, and hands it to the 14-year-old boy. What would you think there? Ooh, that's a little weird. Why? Because the expectation of that young man is to be eating solid food, not to be drinking formula. There was a time when it was needful for him to drink formula, but that time has passed. Now, that's God's expectation, but remember our framing thought. God's expectation, God's desires, God always gives us everything we need to meet those desires. So it's not like, oh, I got to go rake these two acres and I ain't got to rake. It's just not how God works. God gives us everything we need to fulfill his desires. So we could rightly say that God expects us to mature and he has given the church so this is, this is what we would say to folks who are embracing a Lone Ranger Christianity. They're missing out on God's ultimate fullness of the plans and purposes for them. God gives the church as the instrument for that growth. And he gives the church the gifts of Ephesians 4.11 to aid in that growth. And that growth yields God's ultimate desire, unity, and the full reflection, the full imitation of God the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So this truth is pretty important. And so we, not only, it's not just uh, pastors, teachers to you, it's you to us. You, you, you all play a huge part in my sanctification. It's, it's you to you. Does that make sense? You to you. Y'all to y'all. How's that? I go southern on you, huh? Yeah, it's, it's us to us. We know it is the Spirit who sanctifies us, but we have a role, a God-given role in each other's sanctification. That's why we take membership so seriously. You are covenanting with the body. Certainly it means that you are coming under the authority of the church. Absolutely. But it also means that I am, I am entering into a covenant by which I am agreeing that I'm going to bear with my brothers and sisters and sanctify them towards Christ-likeness by the Spirit. That truth is so important. That's why we must be speaking the truth in love to one another. Sometimes hard things. I think Nick, Nick Connor, I, I should, I should, we should put the video clip of his introduction to, to Jer, uh, Jeremiah chapter 8. That's how you speak the truth in love. It's not an excusing thing when you're sympathizing with folks. But it's also not a time to always have the sledgehammer with you. 
Because your goal, ultimately, in speaking the truth in love is to encourage unity and Christ-likeness in the body. And you could say the very right things in the very wrong ways and work totally against that. And I know this, if you're anything like me, I know, I know that people typically have an imbalance. Um, either we're really good at speaking the truth and we really minor on love, or we really major in love at the cost of truth. I'm, I'm definitely tilted one way or the other. I'll let you figure out which one. And as we mature, we become more like Christ, we become more unified, we learn to talk to one another. We're not afraid of even arguing because we know there's boundaries to having disagreements with one another. And those disagreements are, in that disagreement, I want my words to unify ultimately, even though in the moment we might have to be disunified, but we're going to get there, and I'm going to model Christ in my words. Because I not only want to glorify Christ by modeling him, I want to encourage Christ-likeness in the person with whom I'm engaging. This is what God desires for his people, and he has given us everything we need to fulfill his desire for us. Every need we have is given to us and met in Christ. How do we respond to these truths? So now it's time to just land the plane. Like, how do we just think through these things? So number one, number one is very simply, recognize how important it is for God's people to be unified. We talked last week about how God's people are called to reflect God. We are created as God's image bearers to reflect God. Sin messed that all up. And now as redeemed folks with the Spirit of God living inside of us, we return to the mission, which is to reflect God in his goodness and his mercy and his grace and his love and in his unity. So just have that, let that even, because tell you what, we are going to disagree on stuff. We're, we're teaching through a sermon series right now. Like if I had everybody, if we passed out a note card and I said, hey, give me your take on the book of Revelation. Pass it on in. And we put all the response up there, I think we'd be pretty stunned how varied we are in certain things. And the key is even when we're varied in certain things, we have to recognize the importance of unity in God's eyes. Now, now we start to understand, if God desires unity, now, Christ has an enemy. We have an enemy. What's his name? Satan. There's somebody shouting loud and proud, Satan! Without southern accent. My daughters always say, don't use the southern accent. I just got to add a little power to the pulpit here. Thank you. We know that there's an enemy. What the enemy does is he tries to fight against all God desires. So if God desires for a unified body, Satan desires what? A disunified body. Yeah. We've seen it. We've experienced it. Those who've been other churches other times, you've experienced it. Satan gets a foothold in the church, not because there's disagreement, but by how the people express that disagreement, losing sight of the fact that God desires us to speak the truth in love in the imitation of Christ, towards the unity of the Spirit. So recognize that, and we guard ourselves towards that. Number two, 
we take the call to grow in maturity in Christ-likeness seriously. Most people are goal setters. I want to save this much. I want to lose this much. I'm not foolish enough to make that goal, quite frankly. Whatever it is, we are, we are, we are goal setters. How many people have a goal to grow in maturity and Christ-likeness? And if we do, and that's a, that's a God-glorifying goal, do we have a plan for that? God has given us everything we need for that. What if we as a body all set the growing in Christ-likeness and maturity in the faith as our goal? Now, here's something to, to recognize. Like, um, is, I, don't, I don't know, is Charlie even here? I didn't see Charlie. Charlie's been on my now. Charlie's not here. He's been on my now. Charlie, Charlie's a football coach. Nothing quite like having a football coach, right? And, and if I went to Charlie Bell and I said, hey, Charlie, my intention this year is to start and play quarterback for your football team. And I'll tell you what, man, I ain't coming to a single practice. Just pencil me in. He'd probably hit me if he weren't godly. <laughs> but the point is, he ain't going to do it without practice. We ain't going to do it without practice. So we set goals and then we practice things. And one of the ways, so the only difference is, the only difference in my, 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 my example is I have to drive to practice. I have to get in my car. I have to wake up. Got to make sure I have plenty of coffee, enough to wake me up but not vomit during practice. And I got to get to practice. The difference is God brings the practice to us. The difference is God brings the practice to us. What do I mean by that? Every circumstance that God puts before us is an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness and maturity in the faith. I want you just to think right now. Stop right now and think about something that you're dealing with. It could be good things. It could be really hard things. And what we do is we acknowledge that even that circumstance is part of God's purpose to grow you in maturity and Christ-likeness. Do we know how to do it? Do we, do, do, we, do we get washed over or overwhelmed? Do we not know what to do? Remember, God's given you everything you need. That's part of the reason why you have, you have pastors and teachers and elders. I know I, I don't speak for my fellow pastors, but I know a lot of the conversations I have is, look at this is before me. I just don't know what to do. I don't always have the answers. Sometimes we just cry together. Sometimes we just say, I don't know. We're going to ask the Lord and wait on the Lord. But God gives us everything we need, which brings me to my last point. Appreciate and participate in the instrument God has given for God-reflecting, mature unity, the local church. This is the instrument. This is the instrument. This is why we take local church so seriously, because God takes local church so seriously. So for those who have been on the periphery, for those who've been attending here for a while, you know, we get, I get a list of, I get a printout of folks and how long they've been attended who aren't members. For those who aren't, take that step in and covenant with this body and become part of the church in a way where you now join in joyfully in the sanctification of your brothers and sisters under the authority of the church and God's word. Believe that. Take advantage of that. Um, 
Last thing. Okay, bonus and I'm done. I know I'm over time. Be quiet. Don't, don't look at the clock. This is, this is bonus. It'll be reflected in your checks. Don't worry. So check this out. This, I don't even have a slide for this because I slid it in at 1020. This is, the, this is the theme. You've heard it before. You've written it down five times before. You're like, why are you saying this again? Whatever God has called you to do, whatever God has called you to do, know that he has given you everything you need to accomplish it. Believe that. Think of Moses. Whatever God has called you to do, believe he will also give you everything you need to accomplish that. Okay, I'm a minute late. Let's pray together. Musicians and Lord's Supper folks, come on up. Lord, I'm just... uh, Sometimes, Father, we just stand in awe of what we've been called into. (laughs) Just enormous. And Father, we have so many things that want to shove us into the the heavily trafficked lanes, the local lanes, the cares of the world, the busyness of the world. Father, we desire to be a body that is known for its unity, but not just its unity, our unity around Christ and the good news. Father, grow us into that, Father. Bless us with that, Father. Help us to measure each word. Help us to keep your desires before us. Father, help each one of us desire to just grow in the maturity of the faith. Not, so, not that we can win more arguments, but so that we could more vividly reflect the Christ whom we adore. So, Father, do that among your people for our good, but more importantly, for your glory, so we could do the work you've purposed and tasked us with. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.